if I didn't know better, I would think that Brad planned singing that song just before I got up here to preach, and I'm already nervous. I cannot sing that song. I get to that third verse. Oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, was nailed to his cross. No more. I don't know about you, but it's been a good day in the house of the Lord today for me. I went home this afternoon rejoicing over the morning message, rejoicing over the music, rejoicing over the Sunday school class and the the lesson in there. Just excited about what God's doing. And we so often miss because we are, we have our own ideas and our own agendas and our own ways that we think things should be. And so often I miss some of the joy of watching what God's doing. But today, uh, uh, I was okay with it. <laughs> you know, I was sitting back and watching God work and, and loving to see our Savior at work in my heart, in my wife's heart, in the, the hearts of the people of our church. If you would, take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. A couple months ago at our deacons' meeting... Um, Tim Shank opened the meeting reading the first chapter of, of 1 Corinthians. And I've mentioned before, since the trip to Israel, I cannot read long passages of Scripture. I get tied up so fast with little details, and, and I see things that I've, I've read a million times, and maybe not a million, but if I've told you once, I've told you a thousand times not to exaggerate, okay? Maybe not a million times, but I've read many, many times before, and I... I see them differently now. And the little tiny things in Scripture are so fun to, to investigate. And I, he was reading through the first chapter of, of 1 Corinthians. And I got down to about verse 9, and I was done. And he kept reading, but Tim's brain was, was staying in those first few verses. And uh, looking at this, what uh, Paul told those people at Corinth, and... Um, so I was, I was just rejoicing in that, and I've, I've been meditating on that a lot for the last little while. And then Pastor Rod texted me and said, would you be willing to speak on a Sunday evening? And uh, I said, uh, yeah, I could do that. And uh, I, I'm not sure uh, what I'll say, but I'll, I'd be, be glad to speak on a Sunday evening. I started praying about it, and, and this passage came, came to mind, and I said, you know, that's, that's got to be it. That's what God's been dealing with my heart about. And so I'll share with you some of the things that I've been learning. And uh, it's different when I'm bouncing them around in my head. And uh, I can chase rabbits and, and do all kinds of things. And to try to put it into a concise package and present something that makes sense to you is a little, a little strange for me. But uh, I'm going to try to do that tonight. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let's start off just reading verses 1 through 9, if we can. Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother, unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all 
that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, both theirs and ours. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Jesus Christ, that in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall also confirm you unto the end, that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Let's pray and get into this study. Father, I ask that you would calm my heart and allow me to share with these folks what you and I have been talking about. Father, I pray that you would encourage our church. Father, that you would make us joyful in in your goodness. Rejoice in the things that you have provided for us and done for us. And zealous, Father, make us zealous to, to live lives that match what you have provided. For I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I titled this message, The Persuasive Power of Properly Placed Thanksgiving. Paul here gives a, a passage, or a, an introduction to this letter that he's writing, and uh, he, he's giving thanks to the Lord. So let's talk a little bit about what this is. Now, when you first read it, it sounds like, I mean, that's just, that sounds like a great church, doesn't it? I mean, he's, re, you know, he's going through those things. That sounds like a fantastic church, Right. But I'd like us to try to think what those Corinthians would have thought when they read the letter. Because that introduction is an introduction to a full letter. And he's going to, in the letter, he's going to answer some questions that they sent him. But before he gets to that, he's going to make some corrections. And so as, as we look at this, I'd like us to try to look at it from, from their perspective. So start off with, who were these Corinthians? Uh, where'd they come from? Uh, I've written a few things down here, and I'm just going to kind of read down through my notes so that I don't miss a lot. Um, According to Acts 18, the church was a combination of Jews, many of them displaced from Rome. Caesar had kicked all the Jews out of Rome, and so uh, many of the Jews there in Corinth probably were from Rome. And Gentile believers, it was a combination of the two, they had a natural propensity for division based on their traditions and heritage. The the divisions, uh, it was obvious and natural that they would have have problems and divisions among them, and and that could be expected. Many had been saved as a direct impact of Paul's preaching and teaching, but Paul had also been making disciples, and according to the record in Acts, there were at least five evangelistically influenced people uh, named Aquila, Silas, Timothy, Crispus, and Sosthenes. This church was established by Paul, who had spent 18 months in this city, uh, and the city was a cesspool of pagan philosophy and all manner of cultural filth. This, uh, this I'm going to read, I took from a, uh, a website. The city of Corinth is situated on the Peloponnesian Peninsula in so- southern Greece. Uh, the original city was destroyed in 146 B.C., then rebuilt in 44 B.C. at the command of Julius Caesar. 
By the time the Apostle Paul visited in 51 AD, it was a, once again a thriving city. It's estimated that the population of Paul's time would have been about four to 800 people. At that time, it was a major economic center with a reputation for being one of the financial centers of the ancient world. The city was also well known for its immorality, with temples, prostitution, nightclubs, and bars. Excavators have, found, have uncovered at least 33 taverns in the Corinth area in the excavations there. There is a narrow land bridge about six kilometers wide between Corinth and Athens. To the south of the Peloponnesian Peninsula, there was a wild and dangerous sea, uh, sea route that few sailors wanted to brave. They instead preferred the relative calm of traveling up to Corinth and dragging their boat across the isthmus by trolley on a road called the Diakos. So it was a, a place where there was a lot of travel going by or going near there. There were a lot of travelers and there were a lot of businessmen that were there. It was a, uh, a place of uh, Greek influence and all the, the, uh, the, the uh, debauchery that came with that Greek influence. It was also a place of many Jews who had been kicked out of, of Rome. Um, so as you can imagine, this mix of believers brought uh, many baggage issues to the church every time a new member was added. They all had issues. Have you ever heard someone talk about being from a dysfunctional family? Have you ever known a functional family? <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> I, I have known a few families that are just fantastic. You look at them and everything looks just beautiful. You know, the, the man looks like a, a businessman in a suit and the, the wife looks like she just stepped out of a, a you know, catalog for clothing and, and the kids are just, you know, all dressed real nice and, and sharp. You get to know them a little bit. They have some dysfunction in their family. Well, this church at Corinth, all churches have some dysfunction in them, okay? This church at Corinth had great opportunities for excessive dysfunction and it existed. Okay, so you can imagine they had a lot of problems there. There were Jews who were wrestling with their religious past and Gentiles who brought their pagan philosophies, and this young church had major challenges. God, using the instrument of Paul, begins what will be a letter of rebuke and admonition with this introduction. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ, through the will of God, and Sosthenes, our brother. These two phrases establish, first, that he has no authority, Paul has no authority, but will be speaking as if God himself were speaking. He says he's an apostle of God. He is, he is an apostle. He is speaking with God's authority. It's, uh, it's easy for us to read those words and miss the immense authority being claimed here. He is speaking as if God we're speaking. We must remember that God's word is just that. We had an interesting discussion in Sunday school this morning, and we talked about the fact that people don't look at God's word as God's word. Some people, you know, they look at the red letters and the red letter edition of their Bible as, as God's word, and that's a special word, but the other words in, God, in their Bible, well, that's a little different. But the word of God is the word from God. The Word of God has all authority. The Word of God is God's Word. And I find sometimes I can say those words 
and not think about those words. And I, I, as I was working through this in my own uh, private time, I was just thinking how important it is for us to catch that he was an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. We must remember that God's word is just that, the God of all creation, whose word reigns above all human government and power, speaks to us with all surpassing authority. Psalm 119, the psalmist said, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances, for all are thy servants. Not just believers. All are his servants. Unless thy law had been my delight, I should then have perished in mine affliction. I will never forget thy precepts, for with them thou hast quickened me. I am thine, save me, for I have sought thy precepts. The wicked have waited for me to destroy me, but I will consider thy testimonies. I have seen an end of all perfection, but thy commandment is exceeding broad. God's word is God's word, and we need to be mindful of this as Paul opens this, this passage to us and as he, as he prepares to write this letter, he is speaking with the authority of God. We need to be considering that as we read through this. Paul is about to rebuke these people uh, with God's authority. Second, then, he mentions Sosthenes and calls him brother. I appreciated Pastor Rod this morning um, uh, the, saying, you know, the, the, uh, the group of Abijah and not knowing what that meant, and having to look it up. Uh, that's, I, I'm that way on everything now. I just, when I see these things, I, I was reading Sosthenes. Who is Sosthenes? Apparently, Crispus, who had been the ruler of the synagogue, and you find this in, in uh, Acts 18, but uh, apparently Crispus, who had been the ruler of the synagogue, had turned to Jesus as Lord, and hence he stepped down as a Jewish ruler. Sosthenes had taken his place and was not a believer, but the Jews blamed him for allowing Paul to speak, and they beat him publicly. Sometime after this, uh, Sosthenes apparently had, trust, had turned to accept Christ, the, the Messiah. This would have been a strong reminder to the Jewish contingent, especially of how God had graciously uh, drawn them to repentance and faith. Then Paul turns to the personal relationship that each believer has with the Messiah. So he, he uses the name of Sosthenes that is with him just to encourage these believers. Think about what it was like for the Jewish people to decide and to admit and confess that this Jesus is the Messiah. That was a huge thing. And Sosthenes had done that. He was a brother now. And, and so he used his name in that. Verse 2 of this passage says, Unto the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that are in every place, call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Paul acknowledges that the believers owe all their salvation to God. All of it. The only reason that anyone is part of this congregation is God and his sovereign will. You ever stop and think about that? The people in our congregation, you ever stop and think? The only reason that people are members of our congregation is because of God and his sovereign will. Let that sink in for a little while. Let it sink in. 
God is the designer, builder, and authority of the church. No human being has any authority in this assembly apart from that bestowed by God. Paul then mentions that God himself has set these believers apart, made them holy. We have the, the, uh, the concept there that they are sanctified, they're made holy, they're set apart through the ministry of Jesus the Messiah. This is obvious in the Jewish believers since believing that Jesus is Messiah set them apart from their families and even their religion. But it should be equally obvious in the Gentile believers since baptism into Christ had made them dead to the old philosophies and ways of life. Then Paul emphasizes that all of these were called. God initiated this transformation. They were called. It was by God, for God. None of them had been wise enough or intelligent enough or lucky enough to inherit this relationship with Jesus. The only reason that they were saved is because of God. Then Paul specifically adds Calvary Baptist Church in Findlay, Ohio in 2023 to the carbon copy and says, you guys are included in this. Notice what he says at the end of that verse. With all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Paul's talking to us. Paul addressed this letter to Calvary Baptist Church in Findlay, Ohio. He said, it's to all who call upon the name of the Lord. That's us. So we can take this letter as if God wrote this letter to us. That's exciting to me. It's a, it's a different perspective. Sometimes we read these and we say, yeah, we know, it's, we know that it's inspired by God and, and we know that it has power for us. But when you think about it, Paul specifically mentioned all the other believers that would read this letter. Verse 3, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and Lord Jesus Christ. Now, Paul, what was Paul's background? He was a Jew, okay? He was a well-trained Jew. He was a, a well-educated Jew. And this is Paul's oft-used blessing summing up the relationship that has just been mentioned. The blessing is a very Jewish tradition that a rabbi would, would bless his people to whom he's speaking. God's unmerited favor, his grace brings with it reconciliation, peace. And it comes from God. Don't miss our Father. It comes from God, our Father, delivered in the person of the Messiah, Jesus. When we accepted Christ as our Savior, we became sons of God. We, we have this blessing that Paul is, is... We're already past when he identified us as part of this. So he says, grace and peace to us, the grace of God which brings reconciliation and the peace that comes from God, the Father, delivered in the person of his Messiah, Jesus. Verse 4, I thank my God always on your behalf for the grace of God which is given you by Christ Jesus. Now what I noticed when I was reading through this is that these next verses, verse 4 through the end, is Paul explaining to these people what he prayed to God. He says, I thank my God always on your behalf. It's mostly typical for Paul in his letters to express to readers that he first ha- what he first has expressed to God. I say mostly typical. Uh, I don't think Galatians starts that way. 
Um, but it's, it's not atypical for, for Paul to say, this is what I pray to God. This is what I pray for, to God for you. And this is how I thank God for you. It's interesting that in this letter to the church at Corinth, he begins not saying he is thankful for the people. Did you notice when we read through it, he didn't say I'm thankful for you. He's not thankful for the people, but that on their behalf, he is thankful for God's unmerited favor. He is thanking God for them, for what God has provided to them. He's not thanking God for them. It's interesting to, to, to look at it from that perspective. We see a gentle way of speech expressed by Paul for all that are willing to read. When the people who love Paul and are loved by him, uh, when, excuse me, when the people who love Paul and are loved by him, many of whom came to faith through Paul's preaching, may long to hear Paul express thanks to them, they rather hear him thanking God for his blessings, his blessing them irregardless of their character. Is it not true that the only thing praiseworthy in my life is Christ breaking my hard heart and replacing it with his love? It is Jesus who is worthy of our thanks. In these next verses, Paul will tell what he thanks God for and acknowledges as true, and then in what we regard as the next six chapters, he will illustrate how these believers are not living in the joy of God's provision. He will illustrate with this thanks to God what life could be like. It's interesting. As we read these next, six, these next verses and we look at the first six chapters of this, of this letter, Paul corrects all of these problems in the church, but he's thanking God that God has already given the provision for the correction in these people's lives. So let's look at them. Verse, start with verse 5. That in everything ye are enriched by him in all utterance and in all knowledge. Verse 5. This truth that God has enriched them in all speech and knowledge has obviously been neglected by the Corinthians, and throughout chapter 1, Paul illustrates this neglect. See chapter 1. Paul called to be an apostle. Let's just jump down to verse 6. Uh, I'm sorry, let's just jump down to verse 10. Uh, now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye perfectly that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Have you ever heard the saying that rules are made because someone did something stupid? That's one of the things I like to tell my, I, I told my boys that all the time. Um, when I was a youth director, I, I used to tell the kids in the youth group, I don't want a lot of rules. I, I don't want to have to make rules. Rules are made because someone did something stupid. So uh, I remember when I went to college, there was a rule in the student handbook that you were not allowed to dump garbage cans of water from the second story of the Herman building. Sound pretty specific? <laughs> Why would a rule like that make it into the student handbook? Somebody did it. The story was that the man who was the dean of students at the time that I was there was the one who caused that rule to be put in the student handbook. I don't know if that was true or not, but that was the story uh, in those days. But uh, rules are, are made because someone did this. Similar to that, when Paul calls out and says, you folks need to be doing this, 
very often he says it for one reason. They're not doing it. They should be. They know they should be. They're, they should be doing certain things, and they're not doing those things. And so in verse 10 he says, I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, that ye being perfectly joined together in the same mind, in the same judgment, for it hath been declared among to me uh, of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are con contentions among you. Now this I say, that every one of you saith, I am of Paul, and I am of Apollos, and I am of Cephas, and I am of Christ. Excuse me, of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were, were, you, were you baptized in the name of Paul? This truth that God has... In, I'm sorry. Um, verse 5 is this very thing, you've been enriched in all utterance and made... Uh, in his uh, and in all knowledge, they've been enriched. They, God has already done this for them. And for the thoughtful reader, Paul is saying that the Corinthians and, remember we're talking about us, the Finleyites, okay, those who, of us who live at, in Finley and are attending Calvary Baptist Church, Paul's saying that our speech and understanding are naturally vile and in need of being enriched by God. Why would God enrich us? Because we needed to be enriched. Why would God enrich our utterance? Why would he enrich our knowledge? Because our utterance and our knowledge need to be enriched. And we are naturally vile in our speech. Paul is telling these folks that he gives uh, thanks to God that he provides the means of transformation from vile to holy. God has provided that means of, of transformation. And Paul gave thanks for that provision. But then in this chapter, he says, change your speech. You're not, you're not living up to what God has provided for you. Much like the city of Corinth, our communication here at Calvary naturally would tend to be carnal, fleshly, vulgar, common speech, the speech of the world, vile Especially in this age of constant information overload, we need to be enriched by Christ to ensure our knowledge is true and righteous. It's, in, it's important for us to be thinking about the fact that our nature is not godly until we receive Christ Jesus. And we are in Christ Jesus. We have his righteousness, but we still live in fleshly bodies. And we tend to the vileness of this world. How many of you feel, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hands, but how many of you feel sometimes the, the, the impulse or the, the drag to, to pay attention to the vile things of this world just so you can participate in conversations? Sometimes you want to check a news article out just because even though it's, you know it's vile, you know it won't help you in your Christian life, but you want to check it out just so you can converse with people about that news article just so you can, can be part of the, the conversation around the, the water fountain at work. How many, uh, have you ever felt like, what would happen if you smashed your thumb at work? I've known many believers that, that name the name of Christ, but when something goes wrong like that at work, their speech Sounds just like the world.
I remember we had a fellow that used to work with us that was a, a believer, and I saw guys razzing him, picking on him, trying to do mean things to him. And I tried to investigate why, why this was. He was a, a supervisor. He was in charge of the men, and, and I was trying to figure out what. And then I finally figured it out. They were trying to get him to curse. They thought if they, if they get bad enough to him, if they did something mean enough to him, if they got him in, a, in enough pain or something, they could get him to curse, and they wanted to hear him curse. The world thinks like that. But do you ever feel like you want to curse? That's that natural tendency in us. We, we want to be like the world. We want to be vile, and we want to be common. That's a natural tendency. But praise God, the Holy Spirit at work within us changes us, and God has provided for us this enrichment through him and changes our utterance, and he changes our knowledge. Verse 6, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, notice chapter 2 where Paul again mentions this testimony. Paul tells these folks that he thanks God that they have trusted in Christ. Verse two, chapter, or chapter 2, verse 1, I'm sorry. And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. This testimony of God that Paul declared unto them is the testimony that they have, and Paul's giving, excuse me, giving thanks that God provided for the testimony of Christ to be confirmed in these believers. But as you read through chapter 2, they don't live like the testimony of Christ is confirmed in them. Christ is not only our greatest cause for rejoicing, but also our great motivator for holy living. He is also stirring them to now live in this new identity. This new identity they have in Christ is that they would, be, they would live in the testimony of Christ as confirming in them, but they're not doing it. And so Paul's thanking God that he's provided for that, but then in chapter 2 he tells them, but you're not living there. Verse 7, so that ye come behind in no gift, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Another translation of this verse has it, so that ye are not lacking any spiritual gift and are eagerly awaiting the revealing of our Lord Yeshua, the Messiah. In telling these folks that what he thanks God for, Paul reminds these believers that they, as a church, lack nothing they need to serve God in the way God desires. We lack nothing. We have all the gifts we need. We have everything at our disposal. God has already provided it. Then, in chapter 3, he reminds them of the, their reality of life. He also mentions the imminent return of Jesus. He is reminding them that they are here and prepare, uh, that, that they are here to prepare and minister, not to relax in vacation. Chapter 3 is an amazing, uh, amazing chapter on carnality. Uh, verse 1 says, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. I have fed you with milk, and not with meat, for hitherto ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. For ye are yet carnal, you're, you're fleshly. For whereas there is among you envy, strife, divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? 
For while one saith, I am of Paul, and another of Apollos, are ye not carnal? Who then is Paul? And he goes on expressing this need for them to realize their, their um, provision that God has given. In verse 7 he said, so you are come behind in no gift. God's provided all that you need to, to live for him, waiting for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the motivation of, of the soon return of Christ is a huge motivator. In our unthankful society, it is so very easy to think that we could serve God better if we had what? What do you think that you could serve God better with if you had? If I, if I only had this, I could serve God better. You know, I could say, if, if I was a, a polished public speaker, I could serve God better. No. I was talking with, uh, was it, I think it was Russ, Russ Snively today, and we were talking about um, aging, this aging process. You know, there are lots and lots and lots of things that I cannot do today that I could do when I was 30 years old. Now, I've got a choice. I can either get grumble and complain about the fact that I can't do these things, or I can look to the things that God has equipped me to do that I can do so much better today than I could when I was 30 years old. You know, I love God's Word so much more today than I did when I was 30 years old. I can read and study God's Word. I get so much more out of God's Word today than I did when I was 30 years old. I pray differently today than I did when I was 30 years old. I have more empathy for people in pain today than I did when I was 30 years old. There are so many things that God can use me in ministry in ways that He couldn't have used me when I was 30, or didn't use me when I was 30, that I can look to what God has given me. The same is true with our church. We can look around and say, well, we need this, or we need that, or we need the other thing in order for us to, to blossom and serve Christ. No, we need to blossom and serve Christ with the tools he's given us. He's provided for us uh, all these gifts. And, and Paul told these, these believers there, you come behind in no gift. But jump down to verse 8. Who shall also confirm you unto the end? He's talking about this, the Lord Jesus Christ coming. Who shall also confirm you to the end that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul gives thanks to God for the confidence that when these believers stand before their Lord and King, they will be judged blameless. Now, wait a minute. We started the message talking about the the believers at Corinth, right? Remember they got all that baggage? They got all those problems? He he talks all through this. He's he's correcting issues. They, They got all these things going on. And He says that ye may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. They will be blameless, not because they live perfect lives here, but because they will stand in Jesus' righteousness, cleansed by his blood, robed in his righteousness, blameless in that day, right now, we stand before our brothers and sisters in Christ and they don't see Jesus. They see us in all of our shortcomings. <laughs> blameless? <laughs> no way. If you want to start blaming, you can point at Tim Hogan, you can start blaming. You can find Tim Hogan is not blameless. But when I stand before God, he's going to see Jesus because I am in Christ.
and I will stand before my creator blameless. And Paul tells them that, not down here. It's often said to dwell above with those we love, oh, that will be glory. But to live below with those we know, uh, that's another story. And that's what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about their position in Christ and these things he's thanking God for. This is who they are in Christ Jesus, but they're still living like they're in the world. They're still in themselves. They're all about autonomy. <laughs> I have rights. I have, I have desires. I have, I have my way. I want to do this my way. And they're, they're living in that kind of way. In chapter 4, Paul reminds the church that they are living for a future judgment. Therefore, they should be gracious to each other and also not put some on a shelf as if they are greater than others. He finishes chapter 4 with an interesting question. Chapter 4, verse 21. What will ye? Shall I come unto you with a rod or in love and in the spirit of meekness? He says, you going to straighten it up? <laughs> I'm coming. I'm going to come see you. Do I need to come and straighten things out when I get there? Or can I come in a spirit of meekness and, and praise you for, for what you're doing in Christ? That you're living who you are in Jesus Christ. That that's what I'm seeing in your lives. Verse 9. Oops, got past where I was. Verse 9. God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Compare this thought of thanks with the warnings of chapters 5 and 6. Notice the concept, notice the concept in fellowship. Paul brings it back full circle. It is the righteousness of Jesus Christ and the faithful promises of God and our fellowship in Jesus that matters. And all through chapters 5 and 6, that whole mess of, of chapter 5 of immorality that he's rebuking there, and then he gets in chapter 6 and, and uh, uh, forbidding believers to go to law against each other and, and those things, all that, 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 those terrible things that were going on in the church. Paul says, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. What's our fellowship like? Is our fellowship a Christmas party? Is our fellowship sitting down and having a meal together and talking about the ball game? Is our fellowship hanging out together at the mall? What mall? Is our fellowship going to Frankenmuth or, or you know, Amish country together and shopping and, and those kinds of things? Those, those are fun things to do. But Paul says, God is faithful by whom ye were called unto the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, that we would fellowship in Jesus that we would be provoking one another to love and good works, that we, would be, that we would be talking about Jesus among ourselves, that we would be spending our time, our conversations, talking about God and His Word and what God is doing in our, in our hearts and changing us. Oh, that we would, as believers, fellowship around the Savior, not around the worldly things. Think about when you walked into church this morning. 
What were you looking for? What was on your heart and in your mind when you walked into church this morning? Were you eager and anxious to share with somebody what God was doing in your life? Were you frustrated and hurt in needing somebody to come and share with you what God is doing in their life? Were you, did you come to church because that's what we do on Sunday morning? Did you come to church, did you gather together with these believers eager to sing praises about who God is and who Jesus Christ is and to worship his holy name and to hear the word of God proclaimed and to fellowship around Jesus? When you went to Sunday school after the morning service, did you, did you go there eager to, to talk to somebody about a business deal? Or eager to talk to somebody about a trip you're planning or, or, or something that you're going to do, an activity you're going to do together? Or did you go eager to hear something from the Word of God and share something from God's Word with other people? Our fellowship to be around Christ. And so we have this praise, this thanksgiving that Paul gives us and he, as he goes through this, he, he shares these positive thoughts of who these believers are in Christ. And then he goes on in the following chapters to say, but this is how you're living. In Calvary Baptist Church, I think the same can be true said true of us. When we think about who we are in Christ, it's a joy to know that we will stand before him one day in Jesus, and we will be blameless before God. But is our life reflecting that position in Christ today? Is our talk, is our knowledge, is our, is our life proclaiming that? So let me share these, these points with you real quick, and we're closed. Six remarkable reasons to give thanks to God in 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 9. Number one, give thanks to God for setting us apart to himself. Wow. God chose you. God sanctified you. God made you holy. Give thanks to God for setting us apart to himself. Number two, give thanks to God for his enabling grace. God has provided all that we need, and he enables us to glorify his son. You ever, does that just, when I think about the God of all creation, who spoke and everything came to be, and he desires to use this, to glorify his son. I am so humbled by that. I am so confounded by that. I'm so troubled by that at times. I'm so... But we can rejoice in the fact that God gives us his grace so that we can do that. We can glorify his son. He can't... Tim Hogue is not worthy of glorifying his son. 
Tim Hogue is not able to glorify his son. Tim Hogue, in his unregenerate condition, was not even prone to try to glorify his son. Then number three, for our enriching transformation, God has transformed us in verse five. He's enriched us and transformed us. What a joy. Let me ask you, have you been transformed? I remember the day that the, the wonderful lady who later on agreed to be my wife was really upset with me, and she, she was just mean to me. We were in college together, and she was just mean. And uh, I said, what's wrong? Why are, why are you being so mean? Why? And she started this list. of It's like cutting open a blister. And she started this list of all these things that were bothering her. And it was just a trivial. It was, it was, you, know, you know, stuff that bothers girls. You know, it's just trivial. And in the middle of this list, as she was just without breathing going down this list, she said, I'm having doubts about my salvation. And she started to go on. I said, stop. <laughs> I don't know about any of this other stuff. Well, that one right there, let's talk about it. And that day, she settled. She doesn't know whether she trusted Christ when she was 12 years old or not. But she knows that that day, her faith was in Jesus Christ. And since that day, she's been trusting Christ as her Savior. Do you ever think about this transformation that God has done in us? Have you been transformed? Have you been born again by the saving power of Jesus Christ? You don't have to sit here and say, you know, I, uh, people have thought I was, I've been saved for 50 years. How could I ever, you know, say I'm, I'm not sure? I'm not sure. <laughs> That's how you say it, <laughs> you know. It doesn't matter if you trusted Jesus Christ when you were 12 years old. Is your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you declared with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believed in your heart that God's raised him from the dead? Today, is that your testimony? Have you been transformed? Next, for our new identity in Christ. When you've been transformed, we have a new identity in Christ. Tim Hogue is not the Tim Hogue he used to be. And we have this, this new identity in Christ. Number five, for equipping us to be ready for Christ's return. Can you imagine what it would be like to think about the return of Jesus Christ and not be ready? Is everyone sitting here saying, ooh, that's me right now? I mean, I know he's coming back. I, I want him to come back, but, boy, I'm not ready. I, I don't really want him to come. I, I got things I want to do. We can rejoice in the fact that he equips us to be ready for his return. And we can rejoice in the fact that he will return. And then lastly... We rejoice in his calling us into fellowship. 
I started off by saying, God has sovereignly brought you here. If you're a member of Calvary Baptist Church, you are here because God in his sovereignty brought you into the kingdom, brought you into the family of Christ, and then through circumstances in your life brought you here. I was talking with Mike Hindle out in the foyer this morning, I think, and we were talking about uh, God working in a, in a certain situation. And uh, I said, I, sometimes I say really dumb things, okay? And I said, well, we don't know if God's doing this or if God's doing this. And he just looked at me. He's so gracious. You know, <laughs> Duh, that was kind of dumb. <laughs> you know? God can do a lot of things all at the same time. <laughs> you know? God can do what he wants to do. God is God. He, he's a lot more able than I am. But we can rejoice in the amazing fellowship that God has called us into. God has called you here to fellowship. So let's look at this thanksgiving that Paul prays to God for these believers. And let's rejoice in that. And let's turn our hearts towards God and yield to his will in all these things in our own lives. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for the challenge of your word. Thank you for the joy of trusting Christ. Thank you for the confidence that we have in your provision for us in all these things that Paul was thanking you for. Father, I pray that you would now change us, make us accepting vessels. Father, that we would, we would love the opportunity to serve you and we would joy in the opportunity to fellowship and we would thrill at the opportunity to, to speak right and to have the right knowledge. Father, I pray that you would make us joyful, uh, exuberant believers. For I ask it in Jesus' name, amen.